Hello, I'm Andrew Harrison. Welcome to the Bunker Daily. We're doing something different with the Daily on Mondays. From now on, we're going to start your week with one of our panel explaining what to look out for and what's going to matter over the next seven days. We're going to keep the regular one-to-ones and the panel show as well, but we hope this new Monday morning show will be useful to you. And here to start your week today is editor of politics.co.uk and aspiring author Ian Jones. Hello, Ian. How are you doing? (laughs) Pleasant weekend. I can't even remember. It's it's just very fucking early to be talking to another human being. This is it. This is this is the new get up and go Britain that's going to get us out of our uh, slump. You see, you're helping in your own get way. Out. You're helping. Get out and go Britain sounds like the worst combination of words I've heard in a very very long time. I- I'm going to sell that to the Conservative conference. They're going to love it. Anyway, <laughs> we are coming to the end of the Conservative virtual conference. Usually the Prime Minister will be delivering a rousing message at this stage. And yet we're starting the week with news that about 16,000 COVID tests were missed from the track and trace system because of an IT error. It's yet more back foot stuff, yet more firefighting. What sort of message is Boris Johnson going to be able to deliver this week? I mean, I would imagine that it will be a tonal message rather than a practical one of basically trying to say, look, we're going to, you know, th- these are our Sunday uplands, you know, there's a future to all this. It's not just this endless series of buffeting rows and inadequacies that we've trapped ourselves in. Yeah. Because um, most of his communications are that. I mean, it's you'd, you'd really have to be very generous and think very hard before you could find like this proper intellectual argument that he had to make about, you know, what he wants for the country or anything like that. It doesn't really exist. It's all tonal. It's all essentially a, an emotional narrative. And, and I presume that's what he's going to deliver on Tuesday. On um, this afternoon, on Monday afternoon, we've got Matt Hancock, which would be the more, probably the more interesting part of Matt Hancock getting up and going to the Commons to try and explain what the fuck has been going on with the COVID data which is obviously much, much more severe than we thought it was. And it's liable that he's going to get a very, very difficult time. That's about 3.30 this afternoon. I looked at the uh, the COVID data, the graph, the Google graph today, and the spike is terrifying. And OK, it is a statistical thing because they failed to get a load of uh, test data into the system. But the spike, when you see it, dwarfs what we were seeing in March and April when things are really bad. It is going to be hard for anybody to maintain a uh, steady as they go, we're beating this thing narrative, isn't it? When the first thing people see is, well, a lot of people will see, is a graph that looks frightening. Yeah, and look, it's still early days, right? But it's also considerably worse than the graphs for somewhere like France or most of the countries in Europe. It looks steeper. So already it looks like we're experiencing... You know, a worse impact of coronavirus, just like the first time around, than the most of our sort of obviously comparable countries around us. There's also that second point of, you know, and I don't want to sound like a sort of Brexit obsessive. I mean, heaven fucking forbid, you know, that anyone could accuse me of that. Mm. But you look at the error with the data, which is basically, you know, even in positive cases, you know, it was, it was unable to take files of that size. And you just think, how, how is it possible that that kind of really rudimentary IT problem on this incredibly crucial issue at probably the most important time, you know, just that time when you're trying to track cases for a second wave. How could it be possible that that error was happening? And if that error was happening, how in the name of fuck are we going to be prepared for what we're going to be needing to do on the border in just two and a half months' time? Mm. The weekend papers are full of restive Tories, of uh, angry libertarians leaking like crazy, of the competence-based caucus, shall we say, the people who just want to know why a grip hasn't been got all complaining about Johnson and talk that the 80-seat majority only really works when uh, you've got political capital behind it. What kind of danger is Johnson in at the moment? Because you know there, there, is, there is a very strong sense that the reasons they elected him 
because he was positive and he was jolly and he was going to get the country excited, hmm. but not working at all. No. Well, the thing is, I see. I, I just don't. I just don't get this because I just can't see. Even if even those guys that liked him, you know, even if you get when you read these criticisms right in the pages of the Spectator or the Telegraph or wherever else, and they're all like, "Well, this isn't what we signed up for." You know, we 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 signed up. But you think what was it about him that made you think he would have a coherent, deliverable plan for government? Like he never put it forward. He he again went forward on an emotional narrative of let's just pretend everything's upbeat and fine and pretend that the world is simple. And that is, to be fair to him, he's delivered in government exactly what he said he would do when he was trying to get the job of prime minister, right? That's exactly what he's done. It's just an emotional narrative of let's pretend everything's going to be fine and let's pretend the world is simple. Well, that is the same message that he has right now in Downing Street. So it seems baffling to me that suddenly, as one, they suddenly realize, oh, wow, we have no program for government. We have nothing that we're trying to achieve. We're just being thrown from one crisis to another. And yet that's where they are. I, I, I do think we're liable to have a long period of people talking about, will they overthrow him? And it's just not going to happen anytime soon. And even when you look at votes in Parliament, they mostly fall in line. There's no way that a guy that just won an 80-seat majority is about to get overthrown by his party. The thing is that they're eyeing him warily. And they're losing faith. And he can't really afford, you know, especially not even M- not even MPs, but really in the right wing press. He can't afford to lose those guys. And that is a re- that is a really new development. If you remember, the right wing press used to be sort of three line whip behind Johnson. Yeah. You know, they loved him. They would stand by him. We had all that through the Brexit period. He's now starting to lose support in the right wing press at quite a speed, to be honest. And that bit, I think, really should concern. The one that surprises me is the degree to which the star has gone for him, which is you'd expect that to be the least, A, interested, and B, likely to go really hard on the Conservative Party. You know, it is, you know, it's a red wallpaper. And every single day, the front page is, they're still mocking Dominic Cummings. They're still making Dominic Cummings Bernard Castle jokes long after we've given up on them. They're still hammering it (laughs) to the degree that, you know, they now routinely present Boris Johnson as a clown with a, with a, with a red nose. And this from a paper that has, let's be honest, has not historically taken deep interest in politics. Something's happened there, hasn't it? If those guys get it, it's a successful paper. Something has been lost and it's very hard to get that back once you've lost it. Yeah, it is. I think this is the, you know, the classic thing in politics is once you've got the reputation, you know, that's it. It's very, very hard to, to shake it. There was always, um, if in of course, even by mentioning this or, or you know saying his name in any way, you conjure up the great spirit of Corbyn attackers online who will tell you that you're a centrist lunatic. But if you read <laughs> Tony Blair's um, autobiography or the memoirs, he had this thing where he talked about the opposition leader, and he basically said uh, when he first faced them across PM, uh, in PMQs, um, and he said, you know, the thing was to find out what their weakest spot was and define them by it as early as mm. possible. Like with, you know, he wanted to do it within weeks, basically, and just make sure they were defined. And then you'd sort of done all the legwork. You'd done all the hard labor, you know, everything else could just be channeled into that existing image. And in his case, the, the trouble is that the, the wariness that people have of Johnson, which, which is a flip side to what they like about him, you know, the bumbling, isn't he funny, ho, ho, ho bit, includes the fact that he's bumbling. And then when you apply that part to coronavirus, to something, you know, that affects everyone, that has a very, very deep-seated sort of impact on our quality of life, that makes us all quite anxious, if you apply it there, then you suddenly get a quite damning assessment. Then the, the second part to that is, you know, one rule for them, another rule for us, of tapping into that sort of poshness about him, which again, I think people were kind of weirdly fond of. 
but now provides this sort of sub-narrative hinged around Dominic Cummings to, to the way that the rules have impacted on the population or, or, or government ministers. So in both of those cases, these are quite like primary color, intuitive, human, easily comprehensible criticisms of Johnson. And, and it does look like they've stuck. But, you know, note of caution on all this, which is just like th- their polling is not great. And there's some polls that put Labour above them, but Tory polling is not falling through the floor. And given how critical the coverage is, the fact that in many cases, you know, they're still, you know, in upper 30s or, around, you know, around that mark is pretty troubling, actually, because it suggests that their base level support, when you put together Tory party, you know, just what you will always get of Tory party support in this country, no matter what happens, plus residual leave support, you know, it still gives them a pretty impressive showing, even at the absolute worst of times. And that's the bit that's actually quite alarming. At this stage of the game, and particularly with a, 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 the first conference, it's a gigantic uh, general election victory. You'd expect both a victory rally and you'd expect exciting, eye-catching policy, particularly if, if uh, government needed a bit of a, a shot in the arm. Is the Cummings plan for brutal reform of the civil service really going to get them rocking in Pendle? <laughs> you know, is this going to get them excited in scam? No, it won't do. And, and it's, it is a constant source of bafflement that when you get past all of the destruction that he seemingly wants to inflict and you think, well, okay, so what is this great new world order you want to impose? It turns out to be kind of want to reform a bit of the civil service. And you're like, oh, really? That's, it. that's, that's the sum total of what you're looking for. No, it won't do. But I don't think that they're honestly expecting it to too much. I mean, most of the time with the civil service, that's a deflection activity. And they're doing it today over the, over the data um, on COVID really just so that they don't have to take any blame for anything. I think the thing that they're hoping will get people excited is the, the more culture war stuff. So I think they're looking to Patel, Patel's attack on asylum. There's quite a few um, sort of pieces in parts of the right-wing press calling on Johnson to get involved in the culture war, which, uh, I mean, he already is, by the way. I mean, you know, it's not as if this guy's silent. Remember, he doesn't say anything about the A-level results things for weeks over the summer. As soon as someone mentioned the last night of the proms, nonsense. Up he fucking pops, you know, banging on with his latest spectator column, this time in the form of an audio book by the Prime Minister. So he's there, but they kind of want him to do more on that, sort of more on issues around trans stuff, more on issues around sort of racial racial campaigns. And I suspect when it comes to it, and the more desperate they get, the more liable they are to pull this trigger. That'll be the kind of thing that Dominic Cummings thinks will start getting people excited and, and start pushing them towards his camp, just to trigger as hard and as brutally and as ir- irresponsibly as possible that culture war button. Yeah, because it's campaigning, not governing. And, it and of course, it doesn't rely on your record or your competence or your ability to govern. It just relies on people on just sort of shunking people into their various tribal units, which is, of course, you know, utterly a tried and tested sort of formula for dominant coming. So you mentioned Priti Patel's promise to shake up the asylum system. She says it's fundamentally broken and she wants to close off legal claims and uh, shut up the do-gooders. This sounds like this is this is Tory gold, isn't it? This is classic FM Tory old school stuff. Is there anything new here or is it is it a, is it a ritualistic restatement of if there were any blue rinse people in this non-existent hall, they would be rattling their jewellery too? Yeah, well, this is the thing, right? So it, it it's both old and new. So, you know, it, it's old in terms of, People have been saying this for fucking ever. You know, the Tories have been saying, I mean, God, how many, is there, I think there's been seven bills on immigration so far in the 10 years of Tory government. And it wasn't any different under Labour. You know, you go back, remember David Blunkett, John Reid, they all said exactly the same fucking shit as C is saying, right? That they all say this shit. However, um, 
it does look like she's going to, or she is going to introduce new legislation. It does look like she's going to go for some kind of overhaul. And I am expecting something new to come from that. Um, I think there's going to be a restriction on appeal on appeal rights about facts. This is my guess. Hmm. You sort of see that she keeps on talking about the long drawn out process and people getting off it because of lefty lawyers and do-gooders and blah, blah, blah. Now, that's sometimes you can appeal on facts. The facts of the case have changed. And by the way, that's often incredibly important because with a lot of people, they won't know what are, what are pertinent facts for their asylum claim. In other cases, because the things that happened to them were incredibly traumatic, especially in the case of sort of sexual violence, they won't want to talk about that kind of event that, you know, culturally, you know, even personally, psychologically, they just don't want to bring that up, especially not some hard-faced bureaucratic official, you know, that's trying to reject them. So there's a variety of circumstances in which you need to bring up new facts. It's possible that the ability to do that will be restrained. Most of the time when there's appeals, it's on the basis of the Home Office got the law wrong. And in fact, those appeals are very, very often successful. Health warning on this, but I, 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 I think I remember that it's a third of cases are overturned on appeal, but, but health warning. Certainly, it's, it's a very substantial number of cases that are overturned on appeal. Um, and I suspect she's going to try and change that. She's also putting out this idea of, you know, we're going to have a new processing center. I mean, uh, which... Clearly, they wish for that to be offshore. It's not clear whether they're going to succeed in, in, in being able to do that. Um, so I, I suspect that both of those things will come. So look, it's old hat. It is, as you say, meat and potatoes, nasty Tory stuff, and also, unfortunately, old new Labour stuff as well. However, I do think that we are about to see an assault on the asylum system. It's going to be up to all of us to try and stop it. And also, it's Rishi Sunak Day today. Uh, he had to make every a public day pledge. is Rishi Sunak day. Every it's everything's coming up, Rishi. Uh, he had to make a, a public pledge of loyalty in the sun, praising Johnson's seriousness <laughs> of purpose, which I thought was hilarious. That's a real sort of uh, North Korea stuff. But he's he's announcing his winter economic plan with work coaches to get people back into work. It doesn't sound like it's being received with great enthusiasm. Is this a, is this a bit of a make or break week for uh, for Sunshine Rishi? No. I mean, he's going to be um, he's going to be smashed apart slowly. It won't be over one week. But you know, this isn't an interesting opinion. I'm sorry, this is very commonly held, but nevertheless, it is true. Which is, you know, it is quite easy to be popular when you when you're throwing out the money. Everybody likes the person who buys the drinks at the bar, right? But like the the process is now happening where that, and this really isn't his fault. Like, I really do not blame him for this. But you know. We're going to have to judge him on how he responds to it. But there's going to be now a pulverizing strangling of the economy, regardless of what really goes on with the COVID numbers, because we've gone back into an area of uncertainty. You know, it's not really about the restrictions, right? You look at mm. cinemas right now. I mean, Cineworld announced over the yeah. weekend that it seems to be getting rid of a lot of jobs and ba- it looks like it's completely closing up. Now, most of the reports you see from cinemas, cinemas are, are pretty safe, really. You know, most of them have got very, very careful um, routines. They can keep you quite far from other people. But there's uncertainty, right? People are uncertain about their own health. They're uncertain about how COVID is going to work out. So on all of these cases, um, the economy is getting strangled out there. And it's hard, you know, beyond throwing out more money, which I think ultimately is what he's going to have to do and would be the right thing to do. It's hard to see how how he responds to that. So no, it's not all going to happen this week. But I think, you know, over the next year or two, and especially once COVID is starting to alleviate, but the economic impact of it, the economic long COVID is still pulverizing people's lives. Yeah, that popularity, I think, is is going to be seen as something of the past.
Anyway, away from Tory conference before we, before we wrap up, the EU trade talks have notionally ended because they haven't. They're still rumbling on. And, and the breakthrough was that Johnson and Ursula von der Leyen agreed the importance of a deal, which is nice. Do you expect any developments this week or is, it, is, it, is the uh, international championship staring contest going to continue? <laughs> no, so I think the British side are sort of talking about the next, about it being important that they get this sorted in the next two weeks. Um, Barnier was talking about sort of end of this month uh, in that conversation with Vanderlei and Johnson's, and they sort of said, "Well, look, we'll give it another month." So that takes us into the first week of November. So that looks like the period. I mean, it's quite hard to work out what the fuck they're talking about, to be honest. Um, especially on state aid. But the main, the main thing on state aid was was well, sort of threefold. I mean, basically, it's you know the, the EU saying, "Look, you've got to make it dynamic instead of non-regression." In other words, it needs to update with our rules, not just stay where it is right now. Um, secondly, we want it at the level of the intergovernmental agreement rather than the free trade agreement. In other words, it's not just trade orientated. It also, when we when we go for you after a breach of state aid, we can maybe try to punish you by you know blocking your access on home affa- home affairs databases or something like that. That's probably too excessive, but we'd have more wriggle room in our political response. And thirdly, and most importantly, that there would be an arbitration mechanism with trade remedies. So, in other words, a concrete immediate legal process that you're going through in which they can impose tariffs and retaliation for you doing it. Now, the third is by far the most important of all of those. And at the moment, the UK position, from what we can read in in the public zone is, well, we're we're now prepared before the UK said, we're not even going to tell you that we're going to have a state aid regime. We're not even prepared to show you what a state aid regime would be. We're just going to go back on WTO rules for this. Now, it seems that the UK are prepared to put forward principles of their state aid regime. Now, if that's true, the, the good mood music may come from the fact that the Brits have at least said we're going to show you a, a piece of paper and the Europeans are expecting that to be followed up with the actual regime itself. But at the moment, we're not seeing any mention of that. And I don't think that there's going to be a deal with the EU unless there is, uh, unless the Brits do put forward the details of that state aid regime with the arbitration mechanism, with trade remedies. So it's all a little bit hard to put together at the moment, but just from the manner in which people are talking, you presume that the Brits are saying behind the scenes, look, we are going to do this on state aid. We will give it to you. The fisheries issue, I just I cannot bring myself to believe that we're going to have no deal because of fucking fish. I just can't believe it. <laughs> and, I, and I don't believe that's true. I think the state aid, as much as people are talking about fish right now, state aid is, is still where that dispute lies. And I, it must be the case that the Brits are suggesting to them that they're going to show them something and give way on something. Because if not, I don't see why you'd be getting the kind of positive chatter that we're getting at the moment. So what at the, I'll show you mine if you show me your stage. Haven't we always, haven't we always been there? We, I mean, literally on, on these, on this part of the talks, that's, that's where we've been for fucking months. I mean, anyone that tuned out did something very, very sensible indeed, because they missed out on absolutely fuck all. I'm just constantly reminded of the first third of the Phantom Menace, where it's all just trade talks, trade talks, trade talks. And I'm like, I don't understand this. And it's supposed to be a kid's movie, but there we go. I'm reminded of that because I saw that the other day and it's just like each scene is the most grotesque racial slur through the medium <laughs> of, an, of, of an alien species that I have ever seen. I couldn't even, I was just watching it through my hands being like, this is fuck. Like this is, I can't believe people don't talk about how messed up the, the racial stuff. To be fair, Ian, and this, this may be the subject of a separate podcast, not necessarily this one. They did talk about it an awful lot and they could not believe oh, it. Did they? Oh, okay. I missed that. All but, right. but we digress. Anyway, anything else we're looking out for this week? Donald Trump deciding that he's well and getting out of hospital. Nobody knows what's going to happen there. There will inevitably be more job losses won't there um anything else that's uh, that's worrying you this week 
No, no, well, I mean, the worrying part is I have to look at what the Tories are doing in Parliament all week. I mean, there's Dominic Raab is in front of the Foreign Affairs Committee on Tuesday. We know where we can presumably expect him to say that he's just found out that, you know, Britain is an island or something like that. <laughs> um, and Michael Gove on Wednesday is in front of the Committee on the Future Relationship with the European Union. In both of those cases, you're looking out for little bit, little hints and bits of bobs of what's going on with Brexit. We probably won't get it, but especially in Michael Gove's case, who you feel is better plugged in than Dominic Raab, who you, you suspect is sent out the room whenever the adults have to do talking. Um, we may be getting some clearer impression of where we're heading by his tone, if by nothing else. Well, I'm at least glad that the football's gone on an international break. Well done, Aston Villa. You fully deserve it, babes. Ian, thank you for joining me. I don't know why you had to ruin it at the end with all the football chatter. <laughs> because it's important, Ian. It's important. <laughs> I know you is don't it believe very, it. It is just it is. Yeah. Ian, thanks for joining me and getting up early. We'll be back tomorrow with a regular daily and on Wednesday with the panel show, as usual. If you've got a moment to review and rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts, that will be a real bonus. It helps us get seen. It helps us reach more people. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you tomorrow. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold, and audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. <laughs>